Bienvenidos. That's California for Welcome to the January 10th edition of National Review's Radio Free California Podcast. I'm Will Swain, President of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist and author, the host of the Capital Record Podcast, the founder of the eponymous investment firm, the Bonson Group, and a forthcoming book. David, title of forthcoming book? Full-time work and the meaning of life. Yes. Uh, Hello, David. Hello, Will. Good to be with you, sir. Good to be with you. Do you mind uh, sparing me a few moments of uh, historical flashback here? As long as you're the one doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back to 1862 and the inaugural address of our eighth governor, Leland Stanford. Oh, yeah. This was recommended to us by our friend Will O'Neill months and months ago. And here we are. It was uh, January 10th, 1862, when he makes his inaugural address. The time, the population of California in 1862 is just 380,000 people. That is smaller than many of our cities. His immediate predecessors were two pro-Confederacy Democrats. Stanford is our first Republican governor. And what was the DEI process when he got hired? It was intense, uh, but it was the reverse of what you would see today. It was no black, it was just the upside down of today. Uh, no no black people need uh, request admission to the state, I, I joke. But only a little bit because John Downey, who immediately precedes, um, uh, let's see, he pre- immediately precedes Stanford and his, his predecessor, a guy named Milton Latham, they were both called Lecompte. Uh, Lecompton Democrats. So Lecompton's a city or town in uh, Kansas at the time, and you might, those of uh, listeners who love 19th century history and Civil War history in particular, may remember that Kansas was bloody Kansas, and it uh, pitted rivals uh, against one another in the, on this issue of slavery, and the Lecompte Democrats were pretty radically pro-Southern, pro-real slavery sympathizers. And so there was moderate um, affection for these guys. Think of this. The 18th, in the 1850s, as the country is hurtling towards civil war, we, we know that now. They didn't know it then, of course, but they knew there were rumblings. There were all kinds of constituents around California who did not like the idea of statehood. Um, some of them were you know, wealthy and worried about the uh, the possibility of federal reach into the state that might take their lands. They were worried about if they were Californios, that is, descendants of the people who first settled here from Spain. They were very concerned about uh, their being elbowed aside in favor of Anglo settlers. So a lot of people hooked up with the Lecompte Democrats, not because they liked slavery, but because they really weren't wild about um, the federal government. You might call this a California states rights movement but of course on uh, we have on uh, april what is it april 12th i think we have the attack on fort sumter the beginning of the civil war that's in 1861 and at that point the ground the political ground underneath these two democrats shifts radically toward the republican uh, government in washington dc abraham lincoln first republican president And the result is that these two Democrats try very quickly to kind of shift with the shifting political winds. But too late, Stanford comes along and just blows them up. Uh, He wins pretty easily because the Democrats are split between those who support the kind of pro-slavery Lecomte Democrats, those who like Stephen A. Douglas still, who wants to stay in the union, remember. And... um, so they uh, these uh, the Republicans actually they, they come in with Stanford and Stanford makes this just real grand inaugural address. 
Um, he begins with saying, with a radical change in the political character of this new administration from that of its predecessors, there seems to be, in assuming the responsibilities of the chief executive of this state, a special fitness that I should observe, the custom which is heretofore obtained, and give a brief exposition of the general policy that will govern my administration. He, it's, it's a barn burner of a speech, won't read the whole thing. Uh, that would be fun, and we could have you uh, read it in your uh, impersonation of Leland Stanford. But about halfway through, he comes to his point. He says, among all people in free and civilized nations in greater or less activity are to be found two antagonistic ideas. The one is that every citizen is, is of right the equal politically of his fellow and should be permitted the enjoyment and protected in the exercise of that right. The other, the other vision is that he does not possess this right and that he ought to be permitted its enjoyment nor protected in its exercise. I regard the struggle that is now convulsing our country as one for predominance between these two antagonistic ideas. He goes on to say, basically, California is all in for the union. So um, it, it's a remarkable kind of thing, and it's also remarkable because it's a, it's a creation of its time, if you will. Stanford begins the whole discussion by talking about... Um, Gosh, let me see if I can find this little passage here. With the settlement of our state, well, I'm sorry, while the settlement of our state is of the first importance, the character of those who shall become settlers is worthy of scarcely less consideration. And then he goes on to just blow up uh, Chinese immigration. So a man of his times, um, in some respects, very small R Republican, as well as capital R Republican, and... Um, our eighth governor, Leland Stanford. Could Leland Stanford get hired at Stanford today? Not a chance. White man with a big bushy beard? I don't think so. What do you think? Well, I think the beard is the least of his problems. <laughs> okay, so hey, um, let's talk about uh, Kamala Harris. Been some fun stories out there about Kamala, but the most interesting one comes out of the Daily Telegraph, David. And that's by a, uh, a writer there, David Christopher Kaufman, who says that it's his sense that the invasion of Israel by Hamas has been the lifeline for Kamala Harris. He says, mere months after bemoaning her ineffectiveness and unpopularity, the chorus of Democrats quietly considering Kamala Harris's removal has been replaced by wall-to-wall -wall coverage of her unexpectedly robust role in the Biden administration's response to Israel's war in Gaza. Now, he's not praising Harris. He, he comes to bury her. And his point is, is that she is really the Biden administration's surrogate for directly appealing to huge numbers of American, particularly younger progressives, who really hate Israel, either because they're anti-Semitic or because they have a misplaced affection for Hamas. But in any case, she's the one out there who is blowing up Israel uh, in a fairly obvious way. And this has got to be somewhat frustrating, Kaufman writes, to her boss, the president. And um, he writes here, that, you know, for the president, this means rising Gaza outrage could soon prove a political tipping point. He thinks that Harris has decided to go rogue on this issue and outflank Biden on his left. Biden, of course, is uh, asleep at the switch, if there is a switch. Um, maybe the switch is in the hand of uh, our uh, Lloyd Austin. But um, he, he asks, what if Harris is actually stoking the Gaza conflict to paint her boss as out of touch, if not out of favor? And she is the obvious candidate to defeat an extremist intransigent Trump. That's the buzz, Kaufman writes, quietly brewing across Washington right now, thanks to her recent Gaza quips. David, any thoughts about that? It seems to credit her with an awful lot of strategic sense. 
And and what's funny is that they know that it that she doesn't have any strategic sense about anything. So I think there's just a lot of fishing going on. Um, I I think that when I listen to this woman communicate, uh, I most of the time just think, you know, it's one of these hold your breath moments. And like, oh, if you're if you're a Democrat, um, you just hope she isn't going to say anything that will become you know uh, a real. Um, <laughs> and she's really good at those. I don't mean this, by the way, in the normal, what you might call, quote unquote, insult category or, or derogatory category. A significant amount of people on the left can talk and I would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe they said that. I disagree so much. They're so wrong. That was so offensive. That was so stupid. That was so this, so that. You know, in the realm of just where there is substantive policy differences and even personality differences, you know, like there's things that will come up there. With Kamala, like I do, I, I'm being very genuine. I think there's a different level of disconnect here. Like I think she is so incredibly unimpressive intellectually politically as a political animal she's a real loser you know and 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 so then you will say well come on you know you're racializing this or gen i couldn't care less i couldn't care less about her race or gender has nothing to do with this anybody who knows me knows that you know that there's so many super impressive african-american women on the left mm -hmm. that i disagree with about everything that i would still say yeah they're impressive kamala's just not one of them mm -hmm. she, she can't communicate clearly she cannot shake the distinct impression one gets that everything she's saying is cynical and opportunistic and the reason is because everything she's saying is cynical and opportunistic she has no idea which way the wind's blowing and so that's two big problems in life one is the living your life as if you need to find out which way the wind's blowing and the other is not being able to tell which way the wind's blowing like she can't even get on the right side of those issues. You remember in the debates, in the primary debates, they're like, "How many of you, you know, would would uh, universalize healthcare mm. tomorrow?" And like they, they like, well, "What am I supposed to say here?" And yeah, and then she said yes, or she said no, and then later she said yes. When MSNBC, like, I raised my hand, but I would have raised it for this. Like just trying to constantly figure out what she's supposed to say. And then came out and said she would ban private insurance, if I remember the uh, debate correctly. Yeah, so I think that that doesn't come from like having wrong opinions, Bernie. Sanders would be on private insurance, mm -hmm. and he's yes. wrong. But he's theoretical, strategic. Well, he he, he knows he believes in banning private yes. insurance. She right. doesn't know. She does Am not. I supposed to believe in that or yes. not? Yeah, a little bit like Trump on abortion. Um, okay, so that's uh, that's Kamala, and it's it's interesting to us. The story points out that you know Biden is still in deep trouble. His his fortunes are flagging, and the concern around D.C. remains: Is he going to be able to run? I was listening this morning to good old National Public Radio, and the conversation there is that, uh, you know, he's likely, very likely not to debate Donald Trump at all. He's just going to sit this one out, and that would suit Trump, I think, fine, but but there it is. Okay, um, January 1st passed last week, of course. Don't need to remind you, you've got a calendar, and a couple, with it, a couple of uh, new bills took effect. Now, Rick and I, in your absence, talked a little bit about the Fast Food Act and what became of that. The fact is that on January 1st, new minimum wage for workers in uh, fast food companies of a certain size, that would be your Chipotles, your McDonald's, etc., very large franchise operations particularly, 
And um, with a gun held to their head, these companies signed off on a deal that increases their wages but allows for some other uh, reforms to just go away. And when I call them reforms, they're really like attempts to just take over the fast food industry by the state of California. So uh, January 1st, price of labor goes up to 20 bucks per hour in those companies. And what do those companies do, David? You already know the answer, as do many of our listeners. Pizza Hut announced massive firings, ironically, of uh, delivery drivers. Uh, not the wealthiest Californians, perhaps. So once again, fly the social justice banner and then screw the poor. Um, reminds me of that great Dead Kennedy song uh, when you were just a, what, four years old, uh, Kill the Poor. Uh, oh. It was a parody. Uh, it was it was sarcastic. It was not serious. It was Jonathan Swift for the punk era. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's what the left does in California. We're going to make life better for the poor, then they make it worse, and now you've got 1,500 or so uh, Pizza Hut drivers out of work. Meantime, up in... Um, you know, McDonald's, Starbucks, and Chipotle world, those guys have already announced menu price increases. And one of my favorite stories that just came out this past week, David, uh, the world's first fully AI-powered restaurant opens in Pasadena. Uh, this is in LA Magazine. It was all over the press in SoCal anyway. But it's truly like a robot-run fast food uh, burger flipping place. Uh, the restaurant features multiple burger flipping robots and can be visited via reservation only. So uh, this is up in Pasadena. And one of the features of this whole model is not just its kind of cool, like, techno vibe. Uh, the LA Magazine reporter called it dystopian. I don't think so. Um, no more than a factory is dystopian. But um, in any case, uh, what's really interesting is that it, one of the features is that it w- labor costs will be far lower, obviously. You know, most of the capital be in equipment. So uh, that's our January 1st deal there, David. Uh, You you hike the minimum wage, you create a distortion, people are going to get laid off. We know this. And I hate to be right about something so grim, but you and I called this as soon as the bill first appeared over a year ago. Yeah, that's right. It's an, and it's a California problem. It's a it's a, uh, a lot of states problem, and it is not a private sector problem. So, uh, in other news of the of January first weirdness, California retailers now required to have a gender neutral toy uh, aisle. We talked about this as well. Um, let's see if we can find the lead here. It's uh, stores that already have gender-focused toy areas won't have to get rid of those, but instead they'll have to add a toy section that would apply to children of any gender, according to the law. Um, Evan Lowe, uh, who we're going to come to in just a moment, this is a, I don't know, 28-year-old kid now who's uh, almost inarticulate uh, but knows he loves socialism. He says he was inspired to introduce this bill after an 8-year-old asked him, why should a store tell me what's a girl's shirt or toy? And uh, he says, this bill will help children express themselves freely and without bias. We just need to let kids be kids, says the kid, uh, the kid being Evan Lowe. So um, in any case, uh, we've got the folks that uh, our friends over at the California Family Council, President Jonathan Keller responded saying we should all have a compassion for individuals experiencing gender dysphoria, but activists and state legislators have no right to force retailers to espouse government-approved messages about sexuality and gender. That's a violation of free speech and is just plain wrong. Yeah. Um, is this... A culture war shot across the bow or are they trying to like this interesting question if um if i ran a toy store and i was convinced that there was this systemic problem of dis- what is it called gender, gender dysphoria. dysphoria you could argue like there's a need in the market because yes. i've been in a bunch of other toy stores right 
and and they're not they're just not um meeting the needs of all those toys that would require that would be appropriate for people of this particular condition and yet i wouldn't need the state to tell me that like no. I, would, I i would just be like hey profit no one even knows about it yeah. and, and those those uh homophobes and and hate filled anti trans folks and whatever anti LGBTQ people at Toys R Us or the independent toy store or Hobby Lobby. I mean, mm-hmm. my gosh, don't even get started yeah. on those haters. Um, <laughs> they are missing the boat. I'm being able to now. What is a gender dis- What is a gender neutral toy? What it means is that you're supposed to pile in all the toys regardless. Of- it's more about being opposed to gender focused toys. That's right. Than creating a gender neutral toy. That's correct. It's, the toys already exist. Now we're just going to jumble them together so that boys and girls can choose more freely. This isn't even a thing where, like, like if it were up to me, I wouldn't have even put the story in, but I know why you did. It's a, it's a real story. It's California. It is what it is. But, like, uh, the, the right with the culture war stuff, they'll jump onto this kind of thing. And you know why I wouldn't? Because of there's all these things that happen that, like, they can force something against our will, and it's bad, and we got to fight it, right? And bad policy things. But, like, as you learn with Budweiser, there are also things that are just purely trying to fight nature. So, like, like, what's a great example? And I'm sorry, like, I imagine I might offend a few people, but I'm going to just say enough to make my point and not enough to really make this a thing. <laughs> but the Victoria's Secret campaign of we're going to, like, really go after lingerie for kind of overweight women. Right, right. I, I wasn't going, like, wow, it's all woke, and now they're going to try to make all the hot stuff only apply to, to people that are not generally considered physically attractive. I didn't think that. You cannot make a a square a circle. Yeah. Like there is a certain thing that is accepted in nature. Yes. Around sexuality, around what's sexually attractive, around um, the uh, natural inclinations of people. The the fact that, like you say, well, we, we think cowboys and Indians guns are, are, are sexist. We're not going to have a gender section for boys that want to play with military stuff. Right. And, you know, okay. We'll just go have a four-year-old boy and throw him in the park and see how that goes. Yes. It just is what it is. Yeah. And to the extent you go, no, there's exceptions, fine. Then then someone should meet that need in the marketplace. Yes. The idea of policymakers being needed to figure this out. It's it's absurd. And I love I love your point here, which is- that, About the Victoria's Secret? Yeah. Well, that one has still got me distracted. But yeah. um, <laughs> but it's really about character. You know, who? what is the child's orientation as described primarily by nature, of course? Um, I, as soon as you said that, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I've been there. When I was a young commie and an even younger parent in some respects, a newer parent, let's say, uh, our oldest son was born, and we were a determinedly left-wing progressive family at that point. So no television, because television's bad, and certainly no guns. So every time the boy, uh, our, our child, got a gun as a gift or anything, you know, soldiers or whatever, we would very quickly uh, hasten down the hallway and put him in a toy closet, you know, on, up on a shelf where he'd never discover them one morning my wife says hey can you make sure that uh, the child is doing okay in the kitchen i got to jump in the shower so i walk into the kitchen replacing her and he's sitting in his high chair and he has chewed a piece of toast into the shape of a handgun which he has aimed right at me and his words were bang daddy mm-hmm. um this is a boy without guns somewhere picked up the idea that things that make loud noises and you know hurt people and protect you are really interesting and um, fun yes he liked anything that was red hot loud and fast fire trucks were his favorites and that boy is uh, you know now in the military now here's the thing is i don't want to overdo this point you got a lot in your agenda but like I, it bugs me that this is controversial that um that you know the one of the best-selling books 
of a prior era was Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. really not a super deep book, but it was a somewhat kind of tongue-in-cheeky way of saying, yeah, men and women are different. Mm-hmm. And the, this idea, um, it's funny, my son Mitchell is reading this book right now, Wild at Heart, that I remember reading right after I got married, and he was sharing a couple quotes from it. And I was just thinking about, when I read it, I was like, really interesting, but it wasn't interesting because it was profound. It was just this reinforcement within a biblical context about the how people were created and what that adventurous spirit's like. And what you just described about the gun and the cowboys and Indians and the Big Bang and the loud and the this and that, there's an adventurism and a pioneerism and a rowdiness in boys and then there's some boys you know that aren't but those mm-hmm. are the exceptions mm-hmm. not the rule mm-hmm. and then there is a the way why barbie dolls became you act like madison avenue made girls away yes madison avenue catered to the way to nature That's they right. didn't create nature that's I mean, correct. dear Lord, how stupid are we well, to get this the, cause and effect backwards? Yeah. <laughs> and and so now, like, there's always been some tomboys, like girls that have, mm-hmm. a, and there's boys that are a little different. But you want to you want to play around with nature. Yeah, you want someone to look at a print mag and think like this a certain thing is attractive. And I understand that maybe we've oversexualized stuff. I don't mm-hmm. want that. Mm-hmm. But but like there's a, like I don't know like the Lululemon stuff. I always think it's kind of awkward that they've now decided we want to be able to show off a certain athletic leisure wear that was made for a particular look of a woman and we want to make available for all sizes. And it's kind of like, absolutely, sell stuff to all sizes. What's the right way to market it? Mm -hmm. But, But part of me is like, you're acting as if there's a certain physicality, the response Mm -hmm. that is equal and you can make it so just by saying it. Right. You just can't and you don't need to. Well, this is part of that conflicting vision. As a big fat guy like me, by the way, I'm motivated by seeing the pictures of the people that look good. It's aspirational. And I'm saying, yeah, it's aspirational. Yeah. Like, I don't be like, oh, wow, look at this outfit they made for a big yeah, fat old guy. Yeah, Oliver Hardy's like wearing a derby and a Speedo. I want to look like that. Yeah, I, I recognize that I'm I'm more interested in, even though I'm delusional, yeah. I'd rather have this kind of NBA fit look than Jim Gaffigan. Yeah. Well, and you, you know who else realizes it is Jim, Jim Gaffigan. Gaffigan. Making yeah. all the jokes all the time. All the time. About, so... I I get I don't know I guess I get why people play the game a little bit, but please tell me, Will, some point there we'll get a resurgence, not to like Archie Bunker level of inappropriateness, but where at least it's a little bit more normal mm-hmm. that we don't have to sit here and pretend that we can just be like, okay, yeah, boys do like. A hypothesis not original with me is that the pendulum is swinging back. And part of it is thanks to Hamas, you know, where we really saw the duplicity. Um, I I didn't put the story, these stories in the show notes, but over the break uh, while you were in Switzerland, which we got to talk about at some point here, um, the uh, a bunch of uh, pro Hamas demonstrators took over the state uh, legislature and just shut down business. And even some of the Democrats up there were just really outraged. Thought this was a step way too far. But you know, power is is the purpose. That you know, the pur- being able to shut down traffic, shut down the assembly, shut down business, disturb your neighbors. That's that's part of the the process. Not the uh, n- they're not they're not attempting to persuade. Um, Hey, let's move very quickly. I know you, you said there's a lot of stuff in here, but a lot of this is just very quick catch-up. Um, Chevron, uh, the oil company, has decided that it is going to write down uh, some of its investments, its assets in the Golden State, owing to, quote, continuing regulatory challenges. Uh, that's the take from Wall Street Journal. Uh, David, so we've got uh, the headline of that story, by the way, is another California gift to Texas. 
Um, and uh, so this is just, you know, one more of those examples of the California exodus. You've got Chevron just saying, like, look, our assets aren't quite worth what they used to be mm-hmm. thanks to this government. Now, folks on the left are already cheering this and say, see, we're having the desired effect. Mm. But again, who's this going to affect most obviously, it's going to be the poor as gasoline prices surge and as electric car vehicles or you know electric vehicles are still out of reach for a lot of these people. Um, they get to pay higher gas prices, higher than anywhere else in the entire country, including Honolulu, which has to bring in every single drop of gasoline from someplace else. So um, why don't why don't they just drill on their own mainland? They should indeed. Um, yeah. You know, you know what? I get real tired of all these people saying that we should be exporting oil to Hawaii and they should be importing from others. I, I, I'm an economic nationalist, and I just think you make do on your own resources. Yes, of course you do. <laughs> and what would you run? I was, just, I was in Switzerland over the holidays, and I was thinking about how, like, being an American, I never have to think about this stuff, but, like, there's just so many things that are hard to get hmm. in the Alps. Oh, and, and what? Or yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. Well, they get plenty. I mean, they're, they're, it's what I'm saying is- It's a lovely is, country, right? Oh, it's beautiful. It's yeah. a beautiful country. But what I mean is we are globally, not just here in America, we are such beneficiaries of globalization. <laughs> and the fact that everybody wants to sit around poo-pooing it all the time is something you can only do by benefiting from the thing you're criticizing. Yeah, what, what's, there's got to be some wonderfully mellifluous philosophical take on this, but there is something about the fact that the only way you can be a real Marxist is if you grew up in luxury, um, or you just don't know, and you just really, you're really on the, the other side of the spectrum, I suppose. But all the lefties I knew grew up in relative comfort and therefore could think that everything around them would be ever thus, that it was just a matter of dividing it more fairly. Um Hey, uh, I wanted to talk quickly, uh, speaking of oil, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the clean economy, as Governor Newsom likes to call it. And David, I just, I found this story in trade publications around shipping. Uh, the story that I found is, uh, that I've got here for us is from the Maritime Executive, and the headline is, Response Continues to Lithium-Ion Battery Fire on Cargo Ship Off Alaska. Now, why am I talking about this? <clears throat> These were... This cargo ship was had taken off from Vietnam with piles of clean energy, right? All these batteries based, you know, that use lithium and ion. These are really kind of the new cutting edge kind of battery technology required to run Gavin Newsom's uh, clean economy. And the ship was bound for San Diego. It ended up in Alaska because the batteries burst into flames on the cargo ship. Uh, at least that's the hypothesis of the U.S. Coast Guard, which has this ship anchored in some remote bay up in Alaska. And um, in the meantime, uh, you know, as I say, the ultimate destination was San Diego. The, the fire went on for days and days and days, and the Coast Guard was only recently able to get into the hole to take a look at these things with cameras and other safety equipment. But um, this is just part of, you know, I, I, I am just waiting. I don't know what the over-under is here for environmentalists to wake up and start saying, uh, you know, a clean economy we wanted, it's just not very clean. And oh, yeah, it depends on slavery in Central Africa. Uh, let's remember that it was just about a year ago, I think, that Governor Newsom was down at the Salton Sea and declared it Lithium Valley. Uh, you know, we're going to create jobs digging up lithium in California. I cannot imagine mining going on for very long in California before the left steps in, a Native American group step in and say, this is our sacred territory from here to the moon. 
Um, hey, a new bail, bill in Sacramento, David, would ban youth football in California. This might kind of go back to our toys. Ban story. ban all youth football or just tackle football? Uh, I'm sorry, tackle football. The yeah. headline is ban youth football, but it is tackle football. It's yeah. uh, Assemblyman Kevin McCarty of Sacramento would prohibit a youth sports organization that conducts a tackle football program. For what ages? Up to 12. Yeah, I'm, I'm for it. You are for it. Absolutely. Because you think that kids under 12 should not be uh, barreling into one another. Well, first of all, school. I want to be clear. I, it's not that I think it, because I don't have any expertise in it. I don't know anything about it, um, both on the football side and the um, muscular, skeletal science side. Well, here's what I know. This is one of my favorite stories. You ready? Please. I, for years and years, sponsored a uh, table at a lunch up at USC every Monday, and for all the Pete Carroll years, I had my own table. I sat two feet away from him, talked to him every week, every Monday during football season. Mm. He was coach, and I had clients that would come with me and other people, and it would be this Monday luncheon after the game, and they'd show footage of the game, and he'd say this and that, and he'd share some inside stuff, and it was really a lot of cool fun. Then when Lane Kiffin was hired as our coach, he was hired, and they'd do a Q&A, and there was one day there was this guy there, and he almost seemed like he'd kind of been drinking a little, but it was noon on a Monday. That was Sarkeesian. Yeah, stop it. And um, who, by the way, congratulations yeah, to Sark no for getting his team into the college football playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully enjoying a good life of redemption and recovery. But what, um, what Coach Kiffin did was open up the Q&A and this guy kind of like stood up and had his shirt untucked and he had his wife next to him he goes I want to ask this question for my wife so she can hear you know will you please explain why it's good for our boy to be in a tackle football league he's ten and a half and don't you do, I want her to hear you say you know we got to man him up and stuff and he goes uh, sorry I vehemently disagree. The big need for anyone at that age is to learn <laughs> X's and O's, learn to run the routes, learn mm -hmm. you know where to be and how the positions work. But physically, the notion of them uh, taking on that contact at that age, obviously you get into the hitting when you get a little bigger. That comes a little after that. And that's really where mm -hmm. high school football comes in. At that point, they're, they're, there's better pads and helmets and their bodies are in a different position. And there's a reason why we don't even let um, college kids kids after one or two years go to the NFL yet because the sheer violence of getting hit by a middle linebacker on the Miami Dolphins mm -hmm. who's 29 when you're 20 mm -hmm. even that is deemed mm -hmm. to be different enough and and so um, far be it for me to think that the state needs to intervene on this. I don't know what the regulatory body is. It sounds like it's a private youth football league or what have mm -hmm. you. But yeah, but maybe people would expect me to give a different answer. I'm a huge football fan. I don't think there's any reason for 11-year-olds to be playing tackle football. My son played flag football. Matt Leinert has a huge, massive, very successful flag football league here in California. And they can learn how to run routes, throw the ball, block, uh, but not go tackle each other. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you. It's uh, This is a decision that I would make very differently today than I did when my boys were younger and did play tackle football. I played tackle football um, from the age of 10. My little brother was seven when he started. This might account for a lot of our, <laughs> uh, our, our, our mental acuity, um, but I just I really do think it's a parent decision rather than the state. Um, you know, I think parents ought to be allowed if they want to allow their child to play tackle football. I think reasonable people can disagree. You you are one of those reasonable people disagree. But is this the state or is it a, a youth league? This is a state law. This is a state law that yeah, would prohibit I mean, the thing an is organization. Yeah, but like, would you say, do you think there should be girls boxing leagues or that should be the parents? Do you think there should be, 
Um, should we let 12-year-olds drive cars? No, I don't, because that's unsafe for me. Yeah, see, I, I, I wonder... That's your point. Let's keep going. I wonder if you could make... Uh, it, it requires a little bit extension of the principle, but I wonder if you're still within first principles mm-hmm. to make the same application here. Well, it's fascinating because I, I would point out there's a story I should put should have put in the show notes, but a story... By the, by the way, just so we're clear, there's plenty of drivers who are not 11 years old <laughs> who are a significant threat to you, yes. and it's real legal. Okay. Yeah, totally. Um but I, I, you know, I think that what's fascinating here is the kind of sliding Overton window. I guess that's redundant, but the Overton window here, because you've got people like Scott Weiner constantly banging the drum, Mia Bonta banging the drum for kids as young as twelve to be able to make really adult decisions about their futures. Yeah. But oh, tackle football—that's just going too far. You want your breast cut off, your uh, genitals transformed, you want uh, puberty blockers. You're good totally. at twelve to make. So that the hypocrisy decision. argument's a great one, but, but we should we should do a first principles discussion on this yes. because it's come up regarding the cell phones, Instagram. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then the argument has been, which is one I'm somewhat sympathetic to, but not ready to go to where they go. Where, like a Tucker Carlson will say, get rid of all iPhones for 16 year olds tomorrow. And I say, it's mm-hmm. ridiculous. And I have a better counter to it. But what he does appeal to is we used to not have laws against childhood smoking and mm-hmm. drinking. Mm-hmm. Now, now that's laughable. And then I think he's right. But here's what I would say. The difference is there is no benefit that we're trying to tap into to ha- allow a 14-year-old to have cigarettes, and there is a benefit we're trying to tap into to have the phone, and I still agree I'd like to see age verification with social media, and I'd like to see better protections, and I'd like to see the tech companies as go- as citizens do more to avoid the addictiveness of reels and all the mm-hmm. stuff that goes mm-hmm. on. But yeah, I'm not to the nanny state place that some of these others are saying, we just need the government to ban phones for them. But all I'm saying is whether it's tackle football, or whatnot, there are most things that I would say the parents should say don't allow it. But there are some things that we say the state doesn't allow with kids. Mm -hmm. And I think it would behoove those on either side of this issue to better define those lines. Mm -hmm. I like that. Hey, I'm going to present you with three stories here, David. Which do you want to pick? Pick one and we'll move on. Oh, hold on. My my seventh grader is trying to get some cocaine. Let me just tell (laughs) you. <laughs> now he already got it from me. It's all good. Um, so we've got uh, housing, David. We've got crime, and we've got uh, free speech. Uh, any of these you prefer? Pick one. Uh, by topic, what are my options? I can't see uh, this. Housing, uh-huh. uh, crime. Housing, housing, housing. Okay, let's do housing. Now this is an Orange County specific story, but it has greater resonance across, of course, across the state. Here's the headline from the Orange County Register: Residents protest Irvine Company plan to build 1,180 houses. That's 1,180 houses in a wildlife corridor. The headline is problematic. Um, it concedes all kinds of facts, which I would not. I, this is not necessarily only the only wildlife corridor there. Um, but anyway, um, the developer, the Irvine Company, one of the largest private property developers in the state of California, has proposed since the 1980s building houses in this one part of Orange County. And they have since then trimmed it, donated most of the property, almost 70% of that property, to permanent preservation as open space so huge gift of private land to the county to run as it pleases with trails and canyons and that sort of thing it's a lovely area i i I do not uh I, i don't discount that but what's fascinating david is that 
despite that constant whittling down of the, the size of the development, the activists up there, uh, including the guy in a uh, straw hat and bare feet who's featured in the picture there, says, uh, no, we got to protect the planet and any kind of housing here will destroy wildlife and we just can't have that. So there's, you know, a little more than uh, a thousand homes that will not be built if these guys have their way. Fortunately, courts have decided that the Irvine Company is now well within its rights to build this thing. But again, this project started in the 80s. Um, it is therefore over 40 years old, 40 years in the making. Donald Bren was a young man when this started. Well, actually, he wasn't even in full control of the Irvine Company yet. Is that right, in the 80s? Well, he had, I was in the process of, remember, they had an eight-year lawsuit. Okay. I don't remember. It wasn't adjudicated to the end of the '80s, so he had kind of taken over. He was a minority guy with the old Tobman company, uh, which I believe was out of Minneapolis uh, or St. Paul, and uh, and then he, uh, through the course of a lot of things that happened, it's very complicated. But anyways, it's sort of a, you know, why I know all about this? Tell me. I did an extra credit report on it in fifth grade. Of course you did. In the mid '80s, when you were wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase. I wasn't a loser. No. You weren't dressed in a straw hat and bare feet. Um, here's, you know, here's the problem. These guys are using every environmental tool at their disposal, including some which have been absolutely repudiated by liberal state courts, just you know, thrown out. But they continue to make the same arguments that this is unlawful, it's dangerous, it violates environmental rule. Um, What's fascinating is they are now trying to gather signatures once again to stop this. The Irvine Company's not stopping this. They are continuing ahead with their plans to develop. But, um, you know, I, I reference that's more than you know, almost 70% of the space. Um, it says here that the lead environmentalist in this thing is, uh, he says he's eternally grateful for that gift of land. But, you know, most people don't even know about this project. And once they find out, they're upset and they don't want it to happen. So it's never enough. It is never enough until there is no development. And as I uh, tweeted out yesterday, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you hear a Democrat complain in California about the high price of housing, tell them to thank an environmentalist. This is why we can. I think you when you sent me this story, you said, this is why we can't have nice things. That's right. Yeah. And no. The only thing I want to point out, by the way, is that we're piling on on this story because the facts of it are so overwhelmingly on our side and the 40-year history of it, the legal rights of the Irvine Company, the way in which so much of both the environmental, economic, legal, geographical aspects had already been adjudicated. So this is just not a controversial case. But what I do think we ought to is kind of the bigger point and one you're making. Fundamentally, stop it. If you are an environmentalist with a legitimate concern on something environmental stop acting as if there's not trade-offs right now there may be a net net decision in a given case that no we do not want to build here mm -hmm. and this is not the most logical place that and and it doesn't meet the need and the upside downside ratios the cost benefits analysis whatever you you know term you want to use I understand, but what I cannot tolerate is people acting as if there's not a trade-off. You can you can say we need more housing and we need to protect the environment. You can say both those things, mm -hmm. but you have to understand when it comes down to then saying this project at this time that these things are in attention, and then you have to do real analysis and just simply staying to by I'm against it. Well, why is 1,200 houses? It doesn't matter. There's going to be a, a, a endangered species or a wildlife. Thing. Just at least acknowledge 
that what you're talking about is exacerbating another problem. That that was my frustration with the register story, David. This is by uh, Brooke Staggs, and she does not mention housing shortage, high cost of housing, high cost of living in California, not once. It is a story that is exclusively about this attack on this project and all the benefits of this attack and why it's a good thing because it'll protect wildlife. Uh, nobody wants to see wildlife hurt, but also people are being hurt in the process. And as you say, everything's a trade-off. Um, David, let's turn to what I think is the most interesting issue. You and I uh, scheduled this uh, this gathering this morning. Uh, we're talking on Wednesday morning. It's now about 11.15. And right about now, Governor Gavin Newsom is supposed to be presenting his plan for 2023-2020. I'm sorry, 2024-2025 fiscal year, uh, given that the state has a massive, massive deficit. Remember a couple of years ago, David, uh, flush with COVID funds and a massive stock market run up because of the pandemic. Uh, Gavin Newsom went around telling everybody that he was the greatest financial mind in America, that he had generated a $100 billion surplus. He could not cock-a-doodle more if he'd been an actual rooster. Uh, you and I talked about this at the time, that it was phony. It didn't account for actual debt in the state, which is now approaching $2 trillion, uh, even at per capita. It's the largest debt uh, in the nation. And... And now we, we, we predicted this is going to turn around. It's going to turn around fairly quickly. And here we are. We're at the day of reckoning. And today, as you and I speak, Governor Newsom is supposed to be sending his big budget with proposed cuts. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago, David, about the fact that a uh, call went out from the governor's office telling everybody, you know, stop buying anything you don't absolutely need. We're in trouble. So... With that in mind, and the Democrats getting ready to sit down in the supermajority with Gavin Newsom and try to figure out, you know, who's going to lose here, uh, good old Evan Lowe, who I mentioned earlier, this is a guy, again, who's about 28 years old, a self-declared socialist, I'm not making that up, has said that uh, what we really need is a wealth tax. If we just had a wealth tax, it would be so great. So he's introduced an assembly bill, 259, that would institute a 1% tax on the net worth of residents with more than $50 million in assets with a 1.5% bracket for those with more than $1 billion in assets. That's on top of the current income tax rate, of course, which is, it says here is 13.3%. I think it went up on January 1st to 14.3% or 14.8% perhaps. Um, so we've already got a higher income tax rate, thanks January 1st. And uh, we've got Alex Lee of San Jose. I'm sorry, it's Alex Lee. I'm sorry, I said Evan Lowe. Oh, pardon me, wrong guy. Um, Alex Lowe, uh, Lee rather, um, Similarly uh, inarticulate here, but I shouldn't be talking about inarticulate when I get these names wrong. Um, so, David, uh, what's fascinating about this, of course, is that Gavin Newsom has showed zero interest in this. And, and, and the obvious this would be like a starting pistol for people to leave the state, I think, uh, which would make the, de the deficit worse, not better. Um, Lee called concerns about wealthy Californians leaving the state due to a new tax hike. Your classic kind of aristocratic power where if they say, oh, if you do this and upset us, we'll do something. But that doesn't ever bear out to be true, he says. So um, anyhow, uh, Governor Newsom has already said, let me see if I can get this here, this quote from his office. Newsom spokesman Brandon Richards in, <laughs> on X 
formerly known as Twitter, writes, uh, as Governor Newsom has said repeatedly over the years, a wealth tax is not part of the conversation. Wealth tax proposals are going nowhere in California. Now, with a supermajority, they could override him, but I doubt that many of Newsom's uh, friends in the state Senate and state Assembly want to see that day come true. So that deficit, David, is important because it takes place um, alongside a crisis at the southern border and our state's decision to offer free health care to all illegal immigrants. There's no question there's a crisis at the border. Uh, one of the reasons there's a crisis at the border, of course, is federal response, which has been just terrible. The other day I was uh, making this uh, pitch with a uh, teacher's union member who told me that all of this stuff that you and I say here about the problem with illegal immigration is just racism. There is no problem. That it was just as bad under Trump. And I said, you know, that's the kind of thing where if I know if I go back and look at it, you're going to be dead wrong. And so I made her stand there with me in a Starbucks coffee house, and I looked it up. And sure enough, worst year under Donald Trump, the worst year, 2018, illegal immigration was about 850,000 people in that year. This past year, 6.2 million illegal crossings. 6.2 million versus 850,000 or so under Trump. Uh, that's a big difference. Yeah, but almost, almost everyone on the left knows that, so I'm surprised she'd walk into that trap. I, I, I'm not sure. That, that like To me, if I'm a leftist and don't like Trump and don't like Trump's immigration policies, there's really low-hanging fruit. You could say, like, oh, I thought your guy promised to build the wall. Right. Say that. You know, I thought he promised Mexico to pay for it. Say that. I mean, there's yeah. embarrassing sure. stuff Trump can own, but trying to say, like, that the amount of migrants coming in illegally was the same. Well, by the way, legally and illegally. Yeah was the, because that's the issue where the blue states are so hot mad at Biden right now is they were in legally. That's right. Based on the absurdity of the asylum mm -hmm. uh, 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 protocols. If anyone wants to empirically say that the same number were coming in under Trump during Biden, they're in la-la land. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Well, so what's so fascinating about this, David, is the numbers are ridiculous. And by uh, the way, you know how you know that? Do you know how quickly the MAGA folks would have turned on Trump if that were true? You think? Oh, I know so. First of all, Ann Coulter did turn on him just based on the fact he didn't build the wall. Mm. But if you have the level of, the, what is it, the 1.8 million? You had 160,000 in one month from mm -hmm. one state last mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. If you had that kind of imagery of inflows as what we've had since Biden did what he did, I don't. Th I think that's the only issue I could think of. This gets that's this the only confidence I have in MAGA is that their own nativism would have caused them to turn on Trump. Well, you have more faith than I do. I, I, I don't know. This this amounts to just about everything else we saw under Donald Trump, that uh, if you thought that Trump was for something or failing at something, you supported Trump anyway. 100%. But this is... This you is, think this is different? Well, empirically, right? There's like so much gray around it. You can just say... I did something and you didn't do it. So like if what you're saying is Trump would say, nope, there were no people coming in. Right. But that, yeah, like, and you say none of the, the media would cover it. Like CNN wouldn't cover yeah. the immigrants coming in because they like them coming in. Yeah. And Fox wouldn't cover it because they would look bad on Trump. I mean, I guess you could build up enough of a propagandist support. But for the most part, that's a different category of stuff than the norm. Usually with the, the incorrigibility of MAGA, it's just simply a diversion of blame. Now, maybe they do that. Like, like they go, it's not Trump's fault he didn't uh, repeal Obamacare. It's because he had to deal with the, all these pain in the butt, you know, uh, senators. I go, yeah. Can you imagine a president having to deal with the Senate? With the Congress, yeah. But, how terrible. <laughs> the thing is, though, 
is that uh, the guy who told me he was the first one to be able to do that was Trump. Mm-hmm. He said he'd sit down, he'd get it done. Right. And so I love that when they go, whoa, no, 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 that's not Trump's fault. It's because someone voted against it. Yeah. Well, I think the point was he's going to get them to vote for it. Yeah. It's my favorite thing about he's the jo- great deal maker. When right? Jonah goes to defend Trump against the charges that he's Hitler. Yeah. And he goes, it's just ridiculous. First of all, Hitler would have repealed Obamacare. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, I do. I think I, I actually do think the MAGA base. It would be. You're right. There's some who would just lie. Okay, but no, I think that for the most part, if Trump had actually had happen what Biden's had happen, I think it would be he'd be in a tough position. Of all the things he claims, like oh, I had the best economy ever. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. But of course, his economic data was better than mm-hmm. Biden's economic mm-hmm. data. He's got plenty of things he can say as sort of a campaign ad that are going to be true. The truest empirical thing he'll say is that the border issue got significantly worse under Biden. That's that's empirically mm-hmm. incontestable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so I, we I should put a red hat on. Yeah, uh, that's not a red hat you're wearing now. Uh, so I wonder if you know there, there really there there truly is a budget crisis here in California, and certainly offering uh, illegal immigrants free health care. Um, I don't know about you, David. Actually, I do. You and I both pay for our health insurance. It is, in my family's case, because I'm a man of a certain age, it's a little pricey. Um, It's not free. And the idea that non-citizens can come in and immediately capture this benefit is striking to me. And yet, this issue has divided even the Republican caucus, David. So you've got the $68 billion deficit and a need to cut things immediately. This $3 billion cost for this program would seem to be an obvious place to go. That's what uh, our friend of the show, Bill Asaley, a Republican freshman assembly member out of Riverside County, has said. I'll come back to Bill Asaley in just a moment. But on the and the other part of the party, a guy named Devin Mathis came out and made the argument that lefties always make, David, and that is, well, we do have a lot of illegal immigration, and right now those people flood our emergency rooms, and the hospitals are required to bear the cost or bill the state, depending. And therefore, what we really need is free health insurance so those people can go get preventive care. If you just had preventive care, fewer illegal immigrants would show up in the emergency room and the cost would drop for the rest of California. I have a lot of problems with that, but before I mention my problems, I just wonder, like, that to me, David, seems like a poop cake covered with some frosting and (laughs) more poop. It's just terrible. I I don't, the the logic is we've got a problem. Let's just solve for the symptom rather than these other incentives. It seems to me that if you want to make the, if you want to make illegal immigration worse, you support free health care for immigrants and a whole range of other subsidies. You know, we've got unemployment benefits now. We've got several cities in California which have allowed uh, illegal immigrants to actually vote in local elections. Um, you've got some really hairy incentives here, in other words, like food benefits, housing benefits, unemployment benefits, as I mentioned, and now free health care. Uh, if you're living in El Salvador, Honduras, or Venezuela, why would you not come here if you knew that you could cross the border, declare yourself uh, an asylum seeker, and then just disappear into these cities in California? California is the unlocked back door for America. Uh, you know, I don't need to keep banging this drum, but we've already got more than half of the nation's homeless population here in 
this one state. Uh, that's pretty extraordinary. So this will make things worse. But we've got Devin Mathis uh, and other Republicans saying, no, 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 this is a really good thing to do. So it has split the Republican caucus between the Devin Mathis crowd and the Bill of Saley. I, I would say probably the minority opinion here is to go after this issue. Bill's position, David, in the assembly is we have to create stark policy differences. We cannot continue to play along with this this stuff from the left. If we do, we are no different. And so he goes after Devin Mathis directly. Well, Mathis accuses him of being a noob, uh, that is a newbie uh, in the assembly, and a guy who's just trying to make a political partisan case out of this, and he's not doing anybody any good, and we need to take care of our brothers and sisters who arrive here illegally, and then we'll clean up the immigration problem somewhere else, but that's not our problem. My suggestion is the first thing you do is you eliminate any program that supports illegal aliens, and then you see what happens at the border is that fewer people will come here and stay here. And you also have the benefit of taking care of the poor who are already here among us. But that's, that's just me. What do you think? No, I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. Um, that's about it, David, unless there's uh, anything else you'd like to cover. Well, do you want to do any others? Yeah, let's do. Um, this, this was a sad story. It was in the L.A. Times. And by the way, the L.A. Times just sacked its editor. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, the L.A. Times is really in financial uh just a really precarious position so they fired their editor um i'll tell you what i just as an outsider's view of this but as somebody with some experience in the business the la times just cut off huge numbers of potential readers by going full woke full progressive now they i'm not saying that every reporter is there you know who does terrible work but i'm saying that the, the, the tenor of the paper its tone its its thrust its opinion impulse is always to defend only the far left stuff and to attack any kind of conservative sort of uh, program. Charter schools, which support uh, poor kids in ways that are just absolutely certifiable, verifiable, they are absolutely amazing. Most of these charter schools are generating better student outcomes. LA Times hates them. Can't say enough bad things about charter schools, just as one example. Um, but here's a great story in the LA Times a couple of days ago. Rubens Bakery survived pandemics out of the pandemic and riots only to be ransacked during a street takeover. Uh, it's a it's a restaurant, Mexican food restaurant in Compton. It took 40 years to build, the Times reporter says, but it was destroyed within minutes just before sunrise last Tuesday. That's when a mob of more than 100 people robbed the bakery during an illegal street takeover at the intersection of El Segundo Boulevard and North Santa Fe Avenue, according to the L.A. County Sheriff. Um, here's a quote from uh, Ruben Marti uh, Ramirez, who's uh, one of the uh, sons of the guy who started. He says, we've been here for 40 years. We survived the Rodney King riots, the pandemic, and other stuff that happens here and there. Never did I think this would happen to us. Um, some neighbors are actually pouring cash into the place, and LA Times readers have apparently responded. But David, this is... You know, again, the theme why we can't have nice things. This is a family business run by immigrants who the state of California and the county of L.A. and the city of Los Angeles are constantly bragging that they are always defending. But the refusal of L.A. County's D.A. to enforce crime statutes, the refusal to shut down these kind of street takeovers where kids literally like to shut down traffic and drag race and do drifting and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm clearly not a kid. I'm not up on the, the nomenclature. But uh, this place was just destroyed. It was a neighborhood favorite. My little brother, who drives up to Hollywood for his work, he works up in a studio, uh, used to stop there occasionally as well. Loved the place. Says uh, it was just a marvel. Some of the mm -hmm. best Mexican food in all of Southern California now gone. 
Uh, it's, it's very sad. And, uh, you know, I guess for someone who's trying to diet right now, um, <laughs> it's better not to think about it. But, there is, you know, the, it, it is kind of tragic. I actually think there's a reason that restaurants are the ones where we hold this nostalgia. There's businesses that fail all the time because of bad policies, bad community management, bad uh, city, mm-hmm. county, state. <clears throat> and and they can be retail. They can also just be a service sector business. You don't even see as having a storefront per se, and and it doesn't get the attention. And you and, and I wonder during COVID, I wondered like why do restaurants get the bulk of our sympathy? But see, I actually think there's a good reason for it because restaurants are a little bit more than just a business that some immigrant or some you know some family or some small business person owns and runs. They're also just symbolically a place in which when one breaks bread together. Mm-hmm. They do life together. Mm-hmm. It's a place where we go to do life mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. there's a lot of ceremonial ramifications, and so when bad policies put uh, out put to death a widget business, it's sad economically yeah. and not good for the family, not good for the economy. But when they do it at a restaurant, I think there's just a little deeper kind of uh, attachment. That is brilliant. And why don't we just end there? But I've got a uh, an interview coming right up here with Carl DeMaio, who's running for state assembly out of San Diego. So, David, why don't you sit tight and let's listen to Carl DeMaio, and then we'll go to the outro. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, Come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Carl DeMaio, welcome to Radio Free California. Uh, You're running for the state assembly, and you told me just a moment ago which assembly district this is, and then I lost my note. District 75. District 75. Uh, this San has been Diego variously County. in San Diego County has been variously described as a rural district uh, somewhere out by Poway, I think, Santee. Is that right? Yeah. In the San Diego uh, County, it represents all of the uh, rural areas as well as our rural interface cities of Santee, Poway, a uh, portion of San Diego, the city of San Diego, Scripps Ranch. Um, and then, of course, our, our uh, uh, various planning areas, uh, Borrego Springs, all the way out uh, to the border with Imperial County, goes all the way up to Riverside County's border wow. to take in uh, Valley Center, Fallbrook and Bonsall. Uh, so we have a lot of wineries up there. Uh, Ramona, Julian, wow. Julian Pies. Yep. Historic towns. Historic town. And then, of course, um, it is a border district. It goes all the way down to the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, which obviously is a key issue of concern, uh, given the fact that the, the border's not uh, been secure and we're, we're suffering with the ill effects of, of, of that problem. So um, it's an important district. It There's a lot of issues uh, that um, uh, are at stake uh, and that impact the district. So um, I'm pretty excited. 
<laughs> uh, you're excited because you have that part of the brain that fires up when you're uh, close to danger. It's called um, insanity. <laughs> <laughs> Why would a guy with everything you could do in the world outside the legislature, all the things you do, and we'll come to some of those activities, but why why run for an assembly seat in a legislature that is got a democratic supermajority and that democratic supermajority is controlled in large part by very progressive democrats what's the why would you do that why would you put yourself in harm's way um by running for the assembly and thank god you are but yeah so so i guess i, I want us to back up a bit just a smidge um, just to give the context um, for people who may not know about my story and some of the stuff that we've been doing in California, I started out um, in uh, you know growing up in California um, as as a young kid in a broken family. Uh, father was abusive. Mom had uh, uh, been diagnosed with um, terminal cancer um, when I was really young, and uh, she passed away two weeks after my father left the family. And we were split up and I became a transplant to Rockville, Maryland. The Jesuits took me in, um, have no parents, no financial support. Somehow, though, I was able, uh, with their support and a number of other mentors in my life to, um, you know, get a job, you know, get a scholarship to get to go to Georgetown University. And I got a job on Capitol Hill that led to me ultimately starting my first company at age 23 no financing. I just maxed out. I remember I had a, a Discover card credit card and I was able to max out the credit card for my financing for my uh, first programs of a, of a think tank that I developed, a uh, private think tank called the Performance Institute. And then it grew from there. And by age 30, I had uh, started and sold three companies um, and uh, made a lot of money. I was really fortunate. Um, we built, uh, you know, good companies with great you know, based on a great team. Uh, and I started getting involved with watchdog work and government reform work, uh, particularly in California. I'd moved back to San Diego by that time, reunited with my sister and my brother, and um, started poking around in the state of California finances uh, during Gray Davis's uh, governorship, Enron by the 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 Bay, um, Enron, uh, you know, collapsing and the, the budget deficit, the crisis that the state had at the time. But the city of San Diego was also facing a massive pension scandal. And we helped uncover that pension scandal and the fact that they were committing securities fraud. I mean, no one thinks that government is the bad actor, but in most cases, government is a very bad actor. And one thing led to another. And I just found myself finally fed up and frustrated with the corruption. And I said, damn it. I've made money in business. I don't have to work. Um, so I'm just going to go and dedicate myself to trying, you know, before draining the swamp was a term, uh, we were draining the uh, San Diego swamp and the Sacramento swamp. Um, and, and I, uh, you know, was elected to the San Diego city council. I was, in, that was, was uh, 2008, 2008, right? 2008. Mm -hmm. And I was on the losing end of a super minority. There were two Republicans on a city council of eight people. So it was a two six minority. And my Republican wingmate was a rhino, uh, completely unreliable. Um, I felt like Margaret Thatcher, you know, you, you're, you're, you're in the dugout and you turn around and realize that, you know, your own teammates have broken your bats and, you know, stolen the balls. Um, but that's when Margaret, Margaret Thatcher played for the Padres. Not well known. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we were able over four years to build a majority. 
to build a majority in a Democrat city. People think San Diego is a, Demo- a Republican enclave. It's not. It's it's as Democrat as the state of California. Um, but we were able to build a Democrat uh, majority. And I actually, in, in my losing bid for mayor in 2012, uh, during the Obama wave, I still hold the record as the Republican who's gotten the most votes for mayor in the history of San Diego city politics. Hmm. Um, And what it shows is that we were able to win Democrat votes and independent votes and motivate Republicans in a way that, you know, the rest of the state was seeing massive declines. And of course, after I left city politics in in 2013, uh, the city has gone completely blue. It now has no Republicans city council. Again, we had captured a majority, a working majority, uh, and now it's completely controlled by the Democrats and, and the labor union bosses, and it's really uh, pretty sad to see. And all of our financial reforms that saved San Diego from bankruptcy in 2010 to 12 to 14, even my pension reform initiative that the voters approved, all that has been unwound, and now the city is back in the the, the ditch. Um, but what I did was I, 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 I uh, picked up a radio show. Um, my drive time radio show in Southern California on AM 600 Kogo, um, and, uh, built that up into our, the number one, um, po- you know, political show in our market. And it's cause I hold both parties accountable. It, it, it ticks off a lot of Republicans, but I criticize Republicans. I call them out as much as I call out Democrats, um, uh, for their bad policies. I call out Republicans for their ineptitude, their cowardice, their lack of, uh, principle, uh, the lack of planning or strategy or fight. Um, but I decided to do something about it. Not just, I didn't want to do just outrage radio. I wanted to give my listeners and other Californians an opportunity to join in the fight. So I created something called Reform California. It's a political organization, grassroots political organization. And uh, we've quickly become the largest conservative organization in the state. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, subscribers base of 600,000 opt-in subscribers statewide and tens of thousands of volunteers and contributors who power our campaigns. And so we've done a, a lot. I actually led the fight in 2017 to break the Democrat supermajority in Sacramento and we won. We recalled a guy from the state Senate, state Senator Josh Newman, who, you know, is, it was in Orange County. And that's when I met you. Well, um, because he voted for the car tax and the gas tax. And so we we recalled him from office and broke the supermajority of the Democrats. And then, of course, the Republicans crapped the sheets uh, later on in that election cycle and, you know, uh, deservedly got back their super minority because, you know, some of those Republicans uh, voted for the gas tax, voted for cap and trade and all sorts of bad things. Um, but what it showed is that we could, as a grassroots movement, without the Republican Party getting its act together, we could affect change in California. We could give people power. We could make them uh, relevant again. And so we then moved forward with our gas tax repeal initiative. Democrats knew that that would pass, so they changed the title on us in 2018. Again, I've never promised anyone a fair fight. These people are liars, uh, cheats, and thieves. Uh, There's no, no... And I'm sorry to insult liars, cheats, and thieves by comparing them to California politicians, but these are the most heinous, awful, corrupt people that you're going to come across, and Republicans as well, sadly. Um, but they they stole that election by changing the ballot title on a gas tax repeal initiative that two-thirds of Californians were going to vote overwhelmingly mm. for. 
by the time they got their ballot, it, it basically said this measure kills pup- puppies and kittens. It said nothing mm-hmm. about gas tax repeal. Um, and so for the past several years, what we've been trying to do is build the infrastructure in California of a movement of change, of disgruntled, dissatisfied uh, voters of all political parties and um, educate voters and, and reach them through new media. Uh, not just my radio show, but we do a lot of media uh, uh, and, and, and issue advocacy through Reform California, but then also get into candidate recruitment and uh, our voter guide, the plain English voter guide that Reform California puts out and it has since um, 2020 has become the most widely used voter guide in the state of California. Um, it absolutely blows the Republican Party voter guide away, um, and uh, we've had a really good impact on, on on flipping seats that way. But it's still not enough. Well, it, it, we're still while we've made some progress on some seats in California, and I would argue that you know the the seats that we flipped in the House of Representatives in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty two gave the Republicans their majority. You know that those seven toss up seats that we now hold in California. That would have gone to the Democrats, but for the fact that you know we were able to organize effective campaigns and 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 get the grassroots organized and, and activated there, um, you know California was able to slowly start turning the tide without any help from the National Party, without any help from um, special interests or big donors. It's all been very much grassroots oriented. And it's a damn shame because if we were just given more resources, we would be able to do more. So that brings me to present day. I um, I did not have running for office on my bingo card this year, even in this decade. Okay, um, I uh, uh, enjoying a, a, a pretty cool, you know, uh, uh, convenient life. Uh, COVID allowed me to do most of my uh, uh, media appearances from my home studio, host my radio show from my home studio. Um, but when Kevin McCarthy fell from the speakership in October, my phone started blowing up with people saying, look, with Kevin gone, there's no leadership, there's no leader, there's no party leader in California that's left. And um, the argument was, if not now, when? And if not you, who? Because there, there is no voice of the opposition in California. There is no real driving force or impetus for Republicans in California because the handful of Republicans we have left are either unprincipled or inept. Uh, there's a couple good ones and 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 I appreciate them. And I wouldn't be doing this without knowing that they're supporting me and willing to to work with me. But we need to blow up the Republican Party of California. We need to breathe new life into the opposition movement in California and take it in a dramatically different direction Um, because the old tactics are not working. Um, It'll just continue to give us a super minority. It will continue to cause our state to go farther, farther into decline. And if we don't change things now, people will vote with their feet and just move out of the state and we'll be screwed. So that's what caused me to to do this. And and, and to your, your original question, when I did announce I was running, then my phone started blowing up with people saying, what the hell are you doing? Isn't state assembly beneath you? And Will, my response is first, I'm a happy warrior. I, Anyone who knows you know, what I've done in the past 20 years knows that in all of my political campaigns and every fight that we've taken on, 
I will stand in front of the stores collecting signatures. And I think that's where you and I met. I think you stopped by a store in Fullerton, California, uh, while we were doing the signature drive for that recall against that state senator. Degree weather, uh, standing in front of the stores, you know, for five hours with my, you know, volunteer groups. And um, nothing is beneath me because whatever, wherever the fight takes me, whatever role I'm supposed to play in the fight, I'm a happy warrior. That's just what I do. Nothing. I'm not too good for anything. I mean, everyone needs to pitch in and do whatever they can. So I don't see this just as a state assembly seat. I'm going to do a great job for this district. I love this district. It's my home. But um, my job is to give voice to the voiceless in California. My job is to make sure that in every debate in Sacramento, that we not only say no, but we say hell's no, and here's a better way to solve these problems and to organize the opposition. Uh, we're going to lose most of our votes in Sacramento in the early uh, part of this. But the job is to light a fire with voters across the state, not just hit a button in in the chamber of, of that legislature. Um, it is to be a, uh, a catalyst for educating and engaging voters and changing the political dynamics in this state so that we then start putting pressure on Democrats, on Republicans, on Sacramento swamp creatures to actually start fixing these problems. So I'm really jazzed up. I, I do not consider this a, a, a role that's beneath me. I am excited about it. I, I'm, I'm suiting up and going into battle as a happy warrior, and I'm inviting people to help out. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people have lost faith and hope, and, and they don't think that things can change in California. But my, my, my request to them is, what else could go wrong? Why mm. don't you just, you know, pitch in, help out, um, and, uh, and see what we can do with a little uh, a bit of a different energy and a different uh, perspective. So, I know that's like drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, that was your first question. I'm sorry it took me, what, 25 minutes to answer? <laughs> This is why you're a great interview, right? Sorry. <laughs> let me turn to the listeners now and let them know that, you know, I should underscore the point that you run your own show. You you are able to monologue for hours at a time. Um, and I think that's a that's a virtue. I, I do not mean that as a criticism by any stretch, but listeners just got a uh, a, a real performance. So that that is what you're capable of doing. And, and Three hours a day. Five days a week. Yeah. <laughs> and you tell you tell your your answer really does make a lot of sense that you have done this before. You have jumped into fights that may have seemed to others quixotic, impossible, utopian. You know, why would you do this? And you've turned things around. That's certainly how you came to my attention, as you say. So um let's you you it, it is well understood among both conservatives and democrats that you do not hold fire when it comes to bad performance by Republicans as you see it. What, I'm blunt and you, I don't I don't worry about losing my place on their Christmas card list. Yeah. And so but let's let's dig into that. You know, we we know, you know, I know, everybody who listens to my show or your show, we we all know the deficiencies in California. We can point to the problems, we know what the solutions are, and it's not enough. Understanding yields very little about what the problem is. And so what would you say is that how would you diagnose the the other problem, the deeper problem, perhaps, of, I think you called it Republican ineptitude or incompetence. What is it that statewide Republican Party, let's say party leaders or politicians, you know, political leaders who are who at least 
claim to be conservative. What have they done wrong in your estimation? Give us the short list. Oh, it's a long list, but we will go with the highlights of it or the low ones. Um, well, first, by every measure, California is a failed state by every measure. So let's start out with the problem. The problem is our state is unaffordable. It is rampant, uh, you know, rife with crime and skyrocketing homelessness and schools that are failing, infrastructure that's decaying. Everything is by every measure, by every single measure, California is um, uh, a failed state. And I blame Democrats because it's their policies that have brought it to the failure. So we have to blame them for the fact that they're in charge. They control everything. And they have ruined what was once a great state. And California has a lot going for it. You really have to be really bad as a government to screw up California. Okay. And they've done it. They've done it. Um, so I blame Democrats for their bad ideas and their horrible governance. But I also blame Republican politicians and the Republican establishment for not being willing or able to be the opposition party and to have a shot of being the governing party of this state. I what, should they, what should they do differently? What, what, well, for, first and foremost, stand on principle. Um, and I know that that's What is hard. the principle? The principle is stop voting for tax increases, stop embracing regulation, stop going up there and saying, oh, I'm just going to do what the third house lobbyists and campaign contributors, the mega donors want versus what mom and pop want. Uh, you know, what, what's going on on Main Street versus what's going on in Wall Street. And so um, those are, the, the, we've had too many Republicans that don't stand on principle and they vote for these Democrat ideas. We also have cowards who do not put up the fight because they're afraid, well, maybe I won't get scraps. There are, there are a lot of incumbent Republican legislators who are climbers. They're there not to make change because they know that they're in the super minority. They're there to make friends because they're waiting for some position to open up above them that they want to run for because this is the best damn job they've ever had. Okay. Anyone who says this is the best job job they've ever had, you re they really must be bad. Okay. They really, this is a problem person because this, this should be seen as the worst job you will ever have. Um, when I talk to people about running for office, particularly state office, uh, the state legislature. I say, are you ready to work your rear end off and get smeared like any political campaign unfairly by the opposition? And then when you do succeed in the job, going and being away from your family three days a week for most of the year, and uh, every idea that you introdu introduce will never become law, and your microphone will be shut off and you're not allowed to speak during committee meetings and nobody is going to knock on your door or care about you because you're pretty much irrelevant. And every once in a while, the, um, the super majority, if you get out of line, will do something pejorative and petty to you. Like, I don't know, put your office in the broom closet. Are you willing to undergo all of that? Now, if the person hasn't run from the room uh, by that point, <laughs> they're either crazy or they're exactly who I'm looking for. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that for a lot of these Republicans, they're not up there to make change because they're up there to make friends and to hopefully, hopefully the member of Congress who goes to Washington that's in their area drops dead or gets indicted so they can take that seat. Um, so they're fighting over scraps. They're fighting over crumbs.
that's not going to move the needle in California. But stop how does, fighting over the crumbs and the scraps and start growing the pie. But how does the you, and and I agree with the the principles you've outlined. They're just you know economic economics 101 almost literally uh you know just uh, i'll give you one quick example my one of my hobby horses is watching the um government mandated increase to twenty dollars per hour in the minimum wage of fast food workers in california and i was writing i know you know this stuff i'm not telling you anything you don't know but i've been writing now on that bill for about 18 months yep and have been predicting the first thing that will happen if this passes is we will see people laid off. We will see a hike in menu prices. We will see an increase in automation in, in the remaining restaurants. We will see consol corporate consolidation of these restaurants. Yep. We will see food deserts as these restaurants simply shut down and are unable to continue. I was ridiculed everywhere, uh, quite naturally, um, as you know, uh, Chicken Little, and yet what happened in December? We had the first shot fired when Pizza Hut announces it's laying off, I think, thousands, thousands of drivers. Yeah. Um, and replacing them, ironically, with Uber and Lyft. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we can have the principle, we can be right, but that doesn't create more power. There's something that you bring to this fight, in addition to principle, that what's the word i'm looking for it's it you are able to techniques. there's a yeah there's a technique that, that you have there's I tools think. and techniques we've studied so how the do Democrat. you translate how do you translate because let's let's just stipulate that everybody in the assembly who's a conservative really stands on conservative principle let's just say that's the case it's not but let's just say that it is that still wouldn't change things there's something else that you bring and a few others bring that i've seen you have, Maybe to, you can you have explain. to have the techniques and the tools you have to have a a whole set of strategies you have to i'm big on talking about political infrastructure and the republicans have let their political infrastructure in california atrophy democrats have honed their political infrastructure and they start in the schools they they've taken over the schools so that they can create canvassers and activists out of schools that's political infrastructure that's an army of far left wing brainwashed young kids who uh, are out there thinking that oh golly i've got to go and and uh, you know rally for palestine or, or a whole bunch of you know issues that ignorantly they don't really understand and but they are mobilized as part of political infrastructure to be a workforce and of course voters for the left or take a look at what the left has done in California to fund their political campaigns and their nonprofit far left groups with taxpayer money. Those dollars are political infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's funding for their side. They've got that honed down. Democrats have political infrastructure in California in the form of liberal media outlets. There is no independent journalism sector in California. It is all left wing in the tank for the Democrats. Um, and, you know, that's why, you know, Reform California has done a lot focusing on, on media uh, and, and, and our news division. And it's why I think people search out podcasts like this one, as well as my show and a few others around the state, because they're hungry for uh, anything that's not far left in terms of news and information on California uh, politics. Um, so they, they have that infrastructure on their side. They've got ballot harvesting on their side. They've got uh, uh, an entire uh, uh, cadre of union members 
who are out there with voter guides and they do town halls. Democrat politicians will go to the opening of an envelope. I, I have to give Democrats credit. They work their tails off building infrastructure. De Republicans, I mean, the best some of these people do is they show up to the Rotary Club. I think it's not to just give the speech. It's because it, someone offered him a free lunch. Um, but they're only, th that's their view of like, well, I got my message out. I spoke to Rotary today. Um, okay, that's not, that's not going to move the needle. So at Reform California, we have five strategies of political infrastructure. Number one, news and media. Uh, we know that we're not going to get a fair shake in the newspapers or on the TV channels, but we are going to paradigm leap the Democrats using digital, using podcasting, using um, social media, and we've done a great job of it. We're reaching 2.5 million Californians uniquely every month through our various channels. And I do a daily podcast at five o'clock every day called Reform California. Um, and it posts at five o'clock on YouTube. It's also on all the other channels. Um, and it gives people the top three or four stories of the day. And of course, we engage them in in, in uh, the fight uh, to make things better. So news and um, media is our first strategy. And we can actually, we, I'm not here to beg the liberal media to cover us. They're never going to be fair. These people are liars, cheats, and thieves. I have to build something that gets around the liberal media. And we have to get other Republicans to in, in, engage in that. Second, we have to do better a better job at our human capital crisis with candidates. We don't have leadership and talent of candidates. The good people rightfully understand they're going to be part of a super minority. So why give up a private sector job, you know, for irrelevancy? Well, we still need leaders to step forward and do the tough work. And so we have a lot of emphasis at Reform California on recruiting principled fighters to run for office. Third, as part of the human capital, is the campaign workforce. That's where we're going to high school and college campuses, not just to win over young voters, um, which is going to be very hard. If we can get 25% of the young voters, 35%, that's actually pretty good. Um, Churchill once said, if you're not young and liberal, you don't have a heart. If you're not old and conservative, you never developed your brain. Um, but we need those high school and college students for our campaigns, to canvas, to uh, manage, to um, um, uh, power those campaigns. But we also need volunteers. The Republican Party of California has basically wrote off the grassroots. They don't care about volunteers. They care about big million-dollar donors. That's it. Um, or lobbyists. I care about the volunteer because that massive movement of volunteers gets candidates across the finish line. It gets ballot measures qualified through the signature collection process. So building the campaign workforce. So we have media, number one. Number two is leadership, which is the candidates. Number three is the campaign workforce, which is students and volunteers. Number four, harvesting ballots and connecting with voters. Now you might say, well, shouldn't that be number one? Well, you're not going to be able to get voters if you don't have news and information if not educated and engaged on the issues and you're not gonna be able to reach them without good candidates that you can sell and a good campaign workforce to knock on their door or to stuff an envelope and or make a phone call so by the time you get to ballot harvesting and connecting with voters that's really where the infrastructure um takes place and that's where we we use technology to 
create a profile on every voter in a district to try to tag them, to serve up uh, different issues to them and find out where they agree with us on the issues. And at Reform California, we have a massive database. And every petition that we run, every single uh, ad that people click on, any sing th sing single event that they show up to, that's us harvesting information on that voter. And then we can use data analytics to build models as to who else we can target in their area based upon relationships. It gets into data analytics and science and artificial intelligence, but it does work. And Democrats use it, so we should too. Holding town halls um, is a great way to connect with voters in the off year. Don't just start your campaign four weeks before ballots hit or or when ballots hit or the day before the election. You need to be having a campaign 365 days a year, organizing every neighborhood and making sure that you're connecting on issues with voters and identifying what moves the needle for them individually. Uh, ballot harvesting means we have to give our voters a reason to show up, give them hope, and then pester them like heck until they return their ballot. If you have to knock on their door to take their ballot and harvest it, great. Um, Part of what we were trying to do, though, on harvesting ballots and connecting with voters is making sure that as we turn out a legitimate voter, the other side doesn't turn out an illegitimate voter with voter fraud. And so I do have my California voter ID initiative. We do have election integrity teams that we've stood up. We are not tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. No, no, no. Um, there's some conspiracy wacky uh, uh, allegations out there that are just simply not founded. But uh, there are a number of things that are quite concerning and legitimate that need to be improved in California elections. And we need to be working those issues to prevent and minimize that fraud. And we've been very successful at it in a lot of the target races that we've been involved in. So um, that's the, uh, the, the, the fourth strategy. And the fifth strategy, raise the money to do the first four things. If anyone ever goes to you and says, oh, give me money for my campaign, say, wait, hold on a second. What are you going to spend the money on? Tell me what you're needing resources for. I don't just give you money. What are you going to do? Are you going to do media? Are you going to recruit a candidate? Are you going to recruit a college kid? Are you going to do a town hall? Are you going to harvest ballots? Are you going to do election integrity? Tell me what you're going to use the dollars for. Most of these politicians look at money as the first and only thing. I think it's the last thing. If you haven't done the, f the first four things, nobody should give you money. You don't have a plan. You don't have a business plan. It, it's, it's a waste. And so I value the $25 donor as much as $250,000 donor. We don't have any of those. But anyway, if someone offered it, I would, I would treat them the same. And frankly, I, I, I value the $25 donor more because at $25 in California, for that donor, that is a lot of money. That is a sacrifice. Uh, anyone able to write $250,000 to politics probably sees it as a rounding error in their in their ledger. But the, the party doesn't care. The Republican Party doesn't care about the $25 donors. You know who does? Donald Trump. He cares about the $25 donors. I know I don't want to get into the whole Trump thing. You know, people, um, you know, run hot and cold on that. But the reality is this. Donald Trump has built a grassroots movement, and it's quite remarkable. And the Republican Party would be smart to take a page out of that approach. Democrats have a grassroots movement, and they've got people who give $5 every time Bernie Sanders sends an email, um, and uh, or AOC or Nancy Pelosi or whatnot. 
they they built this grassroots machine and i'll give them credit they are in tune with their grassroots the republican party loathes the grassroots they look at our grassroots with disdain and it is quite 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 apparent it is offensive uh and uh it's no secret and it needs to stop and so um the the, the 25 dollar donor has to be cultivated in california we've got millions of republicans in california millions more than any other state in the country and the reason why we haven't been able to get an opposition party going in california is because they are demoralized they don't see the party as fighting if we can fix that problem by addressing the first four issues i just talked about that fifth issue of having resources it will work its way out and i think reform california has demonstrated that because we've become the leading grassroots fundraising organization for conservatives in the in, in, in the in the state and one of the biggest ones in the country at this point well carl you and i uh especially you could talk like this all day and i mean I'm that as sorry, a compliment go on and on no please i'm not looking for an apology and i did not mean it to discount your fine performance and i i really do mean that you i think you know more about most things than just about anybody else in the state on on the uh, matters of election and reform um just terrific you uh you helped uh california policy center right from the start long before i showed up you were a, a california policy center uh affiliate fellow senior, you know your fellow yeah yeah back when it started in 2010 that's right so uh thank you for that you um you set up the room so that i could enter it uh, more easily a few years later but um, let's get you back on uh, anytime, you know, you've got a news hook for us that you really want to talk about. Uh, you know, I, we didn't even touch on some of the issues that I know are important to you. I just want to underscore a couple of things before we sign off here. One is, is that your campaign is not just about electing you. It's about reforming the way in which people like you can get elected more easily. It's um, I think you're building a ladder, basically, uh, or a bridge. Um, love that. And it's also that... Um, you know, I want to approach this as diplomatically as possible, that you are an unconventional Republican in many respects. Uh, I'm thinking here about your your personal life, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. And I think that informs a very astute, um, a, a real, I think, just important sensitivity, real nuance around social issues. You talk about, you are taking bill clinton's 1992 campaign strategy it's the economy stupid and bringing it forward and i think helping us all really just avoid some of the the the, the, the traps we lay for ourselves in politics um that, that's not fair the democrats love to lay traps for us so that we walk it they dig holes cover them with leaves and tell us to walk forward and we do gladly into issues social issues that are absolutely critical I'm a uh, I'm a Catholic boy by training, just like you. Uh, Jesuits saved my dad when he was the uh, the child of a single mother back in the 1930s. Um, there's a lot of overlap in our stories, and so I I know where you stand on many of these issues. But maybe you can just talk, if you don't mind, just a couple of minutes. Uh, then we'll, I'll let you go. But what is? How do you negotiate that? How do you navigate that minefield of like economic policy on which you and I are in heated agreement, and on social issues on which I think we agree completely, but not I, everybody I think, does. But by by my my personal story, you mean the fact that I'm Italian, right? 
I know. I, I oh the other. I one, didn't want to say. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's it. no. Look, there's a lot of adjectives that describe me. Some of my enemies have some choice ones. Um, but I think fighter, reformer, businessman. Um, those are the adjectives that I kind of see myself as. But yes, there are a lot of people say, "Well, how can you be a gay Republican?" Um, and my response is, "Well, um, I believe in." personal freedom. I believe in uh, individual uh, uh, initiative and, and prosperity and personal personal responsibility, all of these things. And I, I reject identity politics. Um, and I think that the Democrats don't know what to do about that. Because, um, you know, their, their, their fallback position is always to play uh, the identity politics card and call people racists or homophobes. And with me, it's like, okay, well, we have to say something else about this one. Um, so I, I do know that there are many Democrats who say, you know, I've, I've heard in their meetings, Carl DeMaio is dangerous because he's not your typical Republican. Um, and, uh, you know, look, I think that they need to understand that I'm dangerous because I'm intent on reforming and fixing the system and I'm not going to be bullied into silence like they have done to other Republicans. So... Um, I do believe that the Republican Party uh, has such a great opportunity if it embraces personal freedom. And um, uh, we are the big tent party. I think the other party is the party of hate and division uh, and labels and separation. Um, and so if the party can, the Republican Party can un can understand how to message that better, I think it, that the uh, the opportunity is so, so great. Um I do need gas in the tank. I mean, I can't do this alone. I tell this to, to, to our, our subscribers, our, our supporters all the time. Like, I'm willing to go out and suit up and fight, but I can't do this alone. So if, if people want to learn more, they want to help out, they can go on my website, reformcalifornia.org. That has a lot of information about the various campaigns that we're running. A lot of our news programs, my, my daily podcast, uh, video podcast is up there. People can subscribe. They can contribute. They can sign up to volunteer. Um, and I know that you have a lot of listeners from across the country. Um, California's fight is your fight because you cannot have a healthy, secure, and prosperous America with a sick California. That's right. And the more that you provide us freedom fighters behind enemy lines with some resources, some airlifts, uh, some airdrops, I guess, um, the more we can do in California and in doing so to help our country. So chip in at reformcalifornia.org that that would really really help this movement out carl DeMaio, uh candidate for california assembly and all around wonderful human being carl thanks so much for spending your time with us listeners you can always find radio free california on the national review website but it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe and of course rate and review the show wherever you do subscribe that boosts our profile and that helps others find and join this little band of brothers and sisters including carl DeMaio. On behalf of my friend and co-host David Bonson and Carl DeMaio, we give thanks as ever to our session producers, Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall, and to National Review podcast producer Sarah Schutte. Thanks also to Metalachi, the LA-based mariachi and metal band for our music. La revolución continúa en la semana próxima.